With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including e-books and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say we have Eric Jensen on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Body by Weimar, Athletes, Gender, and German Modernity. Here's a very simple... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Eric Jensen on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Body by Weimar, Athletes, Gender, and German Modernity. Here's a very simple logic. Communities are made of people. People can either be sick or healthy. Communities, therefore, are sick or healthy, depending on the sickness or health of their citizens. Now, this is a very compelling logic as well, because it seems to explain why nations or states succeed or fail. The ones that succeed have healthy citizens. The ones that fail do not. And of course, this suggests a program for political progress. Get healthy and stay that way, and your community will be healthy and stay that way. This idea can be found in many times and many places in world history. The Greeks knew it, the Romans do it, and of course you find it everywhere in the modernizing programs of the late 19th and early 20th century. Well, in this fine book, Eric Jensen takes on the case of the Weimar Republic. The Germans, of course, had lost a war. They didn't understand why. And in searching for reasons, some of them arrived at the conclusion that it had something to do with the health of the German body. And so they set about improving it. And they did so by engaging in sports and in forming organizations that engaged in sports, and in following sports, and in all ways making sports seem progressive. People who had not played sports began to play sports. The rich and the poor, men and women, people of all stripes. And they were all playing, in a sense, as Eric points out, for Germany in an effort to make Germany great again. This is a terrific book, and I hope that it finds a wide audience. I enjoyed talking to Eric today, and I think that you'll enjoy the interview. So without further delay... Here it is. Hi, Eric. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I am doing really well. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Today we're talking to Eric Jensen about his new book, Body by Weimar, Athletes, Gender, and German Modernity. I was telling Eric in the pre-interview that although these Germans 
uh, became, and this is really the story he tells, they became very athletic. I think by our standards, they were not very athletic, but we can come to that in a little while. There are some pictures in the book which uh, will be entertaining for most readers because they, um, yeah, they, they demonstrate that uh, athletics has come a long way, I think, since, uh, since it was sort of pioneered by uh, not only the Germans, but the Germans among others in the 1920s and 30s. But anyway, Eric, uh, thank you for being on the show. And let me ask you to begin our discussion by providing us with a few words about yourself. Well, I, uh, I grew up outside of Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. Um, when I was growing up, uh, the sports I tended to be into were um, swimming. Um, I later got into running and, and became uh, really into that. I was also uh, very much into, into tennis. And uh, you'll know from the book that tennis and running both feature very prominently. Mm-hmm. And I was not a boxer, and boxers, boxing is the, the third sport in, in the book. Um, I went to college in Harvard, graduated in 19. 19- 1989. I, I majored in history. Uh, after that, I, I went into the Peace Corps, and when I returned from the Peace Corps, I decided that I wanted to go to graduate school, and I went to the University of Wisconsin, and that's where I began uh, doing my research on my dissertation, which ended up uh, becoming becoming this book. And I have been at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, since 2004, where I teach uh, mostly modern European history, and I direct the honors program. Oh, that's great. So uh, tell us a little bit about how you uh chose German history and this particular topic within that larger field? I was always interested in in German history as a kid growing up, and I took German as my foreign language uh, when I was in junior high and high school. For some reason, uh, in my school district, they actually introduced us to German in the fourth grade. That was the first foreign language that all, all students learned. I think they thought that it was supposed to be very, very easy. I remember the workbook was called Ich und Du. And, uh, and I, I sort of fell in love with it. A lot of students then left and got to junior high and went into Spanish or, or French. Um, but, but I stuck with German and I did a couple of exchanges in Germany and became good friends with, with some Germans. And when I got to college, um, I, I, I knew I wanted to major in history. Um, and I knew that I wanted to concentrate uh, within that subfield in, in German history. Um, as to how I got onto the, the topic uh, that ended up becoming my book, um, it actually goes back to when I was an undergraduate in, in 1988. Uh, this was the, the Winter Olympics were going on, and I was in a junior tutorial, and my junior tutor said, Eric, you've, you've got to come up with a topic for your junior tutorial paper, which is going to be this 30-page paper. This is the, the biggest paper I'd written up to that point. And I was watching the Winter Olympics, and I was kind of wondering to myself, God, the, why are the East Germans cleaning up? In, in kind of these obscure sports like luge and, and you know, and, and speed skating and, and, and biathlon and, and even know what the biathlon was. And I ended up exploring that, the role of, of sports and kind of um, socialist identity, national identity in East Germany. That kind of morphed into my senior honors thesis, which looked at uh, a two-century trajectory of German sports history. And then in, in, in writing that thesis, I became especially interested in the Weimar Republic. And that is what I picked up when I got into graduate school and ended up writing my master's thesis specifically on the Weimar Republic and then, um, and then doing my, my PhD dissertation on that field as well because I was just taken by, by the seemingly unlimited possibilities um, that, that emerged in the aftermath of the First World War. I mean, the Weimar Republic in many ways was so exuberant and so full of possibilities. And I was really drawn to that aspect 
of the Weimar Republic, that sort of initial optimistic, exuberant, um, kind of cultural, social aspect mm -hmm. of, of, of the Weimar Republic. So mm -hmm. that's what I end up focusing on in my book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it certainly is a fascinating time and was a fascinating place. Uh, I think the, the more so because of what happened immediately afterwards, but we won't go there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can talk about it later. <laughs> yeah, I want to, um, I want to ask some, uh, uh, some preliminary questions about uh, sports in European culture generally and in German culture specifically. Did Germans play sports in the 19th century, late 19th century prior to this? Uh, did they play sports leading up into, uh, you know, I just actually read a biography of, well, actually it wasn't a biography of Hitler, but it was about Hitler's early years and I don't think he played any sports. No, no. <laughs> um, uh, it's interesting because uh, Germany, um, beginning in the early part of the 19th century, in fact, um, at the time of the Napoleonic Wars, developed an indigenous tradition of physical culture that um, is, is sort of akin to gymnastics. In fact, it's a lot of gymnastics moves, um, a lot of um, group calisthenics. This was the, the turn-in movement that uh, became increasingly popular, increasingly associated with nationalism, and at least initially in the, in the 19th century, uh, very much associated with uh, political liberalism and um, kind of the, the, the movement for, for greater rights and the lead-up to the revolutions of 1848. Uh, by the end of the 19th century, it's it's still very, very popular and it has quite a following, um, tended to develop a, a more um, kind of conservative outlook and tended to be a little bit more associated with, with uh, conservative politics. At the end of the, or in the second half of the 19th century, uh, as British traders are um, increasing their activity with, with Germany, uh, British engineers are coming in and uh, working with uh, German factory owners, um, wealthy uh, British men and women are visiting German spas, they begin to introduce uh, British sports, competitive sports, into Germany. And that's when you see um, the, the advent of of competitive track and field, uh, soccer, um, tennis, uh, and a number of these uh, sports that we associate with with um, more of the British um, physical culture tradition. Um, boxing was actually uh, sort of quasi illegal. Um, <laughs> it, it kind of varied from locality to locality, but it, it was it was definitely sort of a, a, an underground sport, at the very least, a sport that existed in the shadows um, in the later years of Imperial Germany. It's really not until 1918 that boxing emerges as this popular spectator sport. It was never a big uh, participa uh, participatory sport, but it emerges as a very, very popular spectator sport, 1918, 1919, 1920, and then it becomes, um, in some ways, along with the, the, the legendary six-day races, sort of the uh, sport for kind of the social elite, and this is where you went to be, to see and be seen in, in, in Weimar Berlin. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but, but in terms of these competitive sports, they really come over from Britain, and they come over um, at the end of the 19th century. It's an important point to keep in mind because in this debate that emerges between turn-in and competitive sports um, in the 1920s, uh, one of the big uh, criticisms that turn-in has uh, toward competitive sports is precisely that it's important, that it's cosmopolitan, that it's foreign, and even worse, it, it's coming from you know our, our, our the, the country that just defeated us in the First World War. It, mm -hmm. it, it was tainted by all of these foreign connections. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then, uh, in, the simplistic answer to the question is uh, no. That they didn't. They really did not. They didn't. I said, yeah. I'm just trying to boil it down here because I do. I do remember, uh, and I don't remember a lot at my age, but I do remember the, the sport that I really associate with Germans in the late 19th and early 20th century is dueling, as in dueling scars. 
Right, yeah, dueling, um, dueling was big, turning was big, um, uh, weightlifting, there's, there was a burgeoning weightlifting culture that the historian, uh, Ben, uh, Vedermeyer talks about in, in a number of his books. Um, so there, there certainly were aspects of physical culture, but, uh, in terms of competitive sports, almost all of these were, were, um, were imported, uh, from Britain and kind of imported beginning in the 1870s and, and via these, these trading ports and kind of spa towns that attracted mm-hmm. British businessmen and British tourists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's very interesting. So uh, the sport of kings, that, that's tennis, right? Is, yeah. Isn't that the sport of kings? <laughs> I, I don't think about or, it as the sport or, or of kings. Or warfare, I can't remember. Right. I don't know, but, you know, the, the – uh, the, um, I don't know. To someone like me who grew up in the Midwest, uh, tennis courts were a dime a dozen. I mean, every time they built a, a park for kids, they built tennis courts too. So everybody kind of went and hacked around in the tennis court. But it was very different in – um, late 19th century Germany, tennis was a d- different sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit about that before it was popularized, which is – I guess popularized might not be quite the right word, but before it spread to other classes and genders? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, I grew up in the Midwest as well, and, and, and absolutely every public park had a tennis court, and that's where I always went to play. And even today in Germany, um, kind of public – Tennis courts, the, the way we know them in, in, in many uh, U.S. cities, are, are very, very rare. Huh. But um, they were even rarer in, um, in, in the 1920s. It was very much seen as, as kind of an elite uh, upper-class sport. Uh, you belong to a club. And it was, you know, it was not a sport for the unwashed. This was a sport for uh, people who, who had connections. The interesting thing about tennis that begins to change over the course of the 1920s is it gradually becomes less aristocratic and more middle class. And this was particularly true for women. This was also true for men, but it was especially true for women that in many ways, women saw tennis as an avenue of upward mobility, as kind of an entree into uh, higher society, and uh, for some of the most talented women, as a way to actually to, to, to make money. There were, there were a small number of, of uh, professional female players. And in fact, Suzanne Longland, the, the, the legendary French player, is really the, the, the woman who, really the person, the tennis player, who kind of pioneers uh, the professionalization of tennis. Um, but Throughout the 1920s, it really, it really was seen as this, this aristocratic upper class sport, and this was particularly the case for men. And this only gradually begins to change by the very late uh, 20s and, and early 1930s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what what did people say about playing tennis? Did they say, uh, well, you know, you really should be uh, healthier than you are, and or did they say something as bald as uh, we were defeated by the Brits in World War One, so we need to get out there and do stuff, and we're going to play tennis? Well, it was interesting. Um, uh, in terms of the, the, this post-war, post-World War One um, kind of redirection of attention to the body, in the sense that that Germany was uh, perhaps in a, in a kind of a corporeal crisis as well as a, a political and an economic and a military crisis. Um, all of that attention tends to get directed more toward uh, what we're seeing at the time as very, very vigorous sports, um, particularly track and field, um, to some extent boxing as well. Um, tennis was was always seen as, as, as a little bit more of a pastime and a game uh, than as an actual sport. Tennis was never really seen as a way of invigorating the body. Huh. 
And again, this was especially true uh, for men. Uh, for women, tennis was seen as a very vigorous sport. And in fact, there's this whole discourse um, that I look at at the book, in the book that emerges in the mid-1920s, where these commentators are looking at tennis and they're saying, why can't the men play like the women? Because the women are out there actually transforming in this into a sport, and the men are still playing it like it's a, you know, it's a game. It's like this, this leisurely afternoon of hitting the ball back and forth, where the highlight is really, after the game, you sit down, you have coffee and cake. <laughs> <laughs> to them, that was what that was what the men's game was about. Whereas the women had already successfully transformed it into a sport, and they're saying, you know, they're basically saying to the men, "Why can't you play more like the women? Why can't you, you know, why can't you tough them up and like actually make this make this a sport?" Um, and the interesting thing that I find is is that a lot of the men were um, were really kind of redefining uh, male gender roles um, at the same time as well, and they were in, in a way. Um, the, these these sort of top uh, male tennis players are kind of role models for a, a liberated masculinity that is not bo so beholden to like sort of toughness and, and rigor and kind of sweat and strain that is actually appreciating the pleasures of life, kind of a, a softer, more gentle uh, masculinity, a masculinity that makes space to be a dandy and to you know, sort of enjoy the finer things in life. So it's really interesting because actually... Um, at the same time as these commentators are saying to the men, why don't you toughen up? There are a number of men who are like, you know, we actually like it this way, and we're making this a, an art rather than a sport. And, you know, there's something about a beautiful, elegant game that is, is much more impressive and, and much more to be valued than a hard-fought, rigorous game. So there's, there's a little bit of back and forth uh, there with, um, with regard to the criticism of the men's, the men's game. Uh -huh. do, you, do you think that they uh, resisted professionalization um, because... They felt that um, games, if we can call them that, were just games and that men, actually the only true sport for men was war? Yeah, I think, I think they resisted it um, uh, for a number of reasons. Um, uh, sort of one of the reasons they resisted it was that uh, professionalization sort of turned this sort of, you know, elegant gentleman's pastime into something very crass and commercialized. That that this now that now this was gonna become this sport where people are gonna are gonna look at it as an opportunity to make money and that in many ways it's gonna take away the beauty and the elegance of the game. And it's also gonna, you know, open up the game a little bit more to um you know, to to um to, to the unwashed, to the to the hoi polloi, that, that this is no longer gonna be this elite refined game because um as long as they resisted uh professionalization these tournaments were really mostly played by aristocrats or, or men and women of, of independent means that did not have to uh, work for a living because they were spending their, their winters in the Riviera and they, they could afford to travel on their own dime uh, to these various tournaments that were often held in spa towns. As it's becoming more and more commercialized, some of these uh, players are seeing the potential for this, this world to disappear, as it, as it in fact has. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it was more from um, kind of a sense that that commercialization was 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 cheapening the game uh, to some extent. And again, I think the resistance comes the resistance comes from both the, the men's side and the women's side. But I think much more from the men's side. I think a lot of a lot of certainly female tennis players themselves and commentators on women's tennis were seeing this as fantastic. This is yet another blow for for women's liberation. Like you know, these women are showing uh, their their legions of female fans how to be sort of independent people 
um, in a society in which you know it's increasingly common that they 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 are not married and 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 you know can't count on men and and mm-hmm. kind of have to make it on their own and that these women are role models for for how to do precisely that. Mm-hmm. 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 I see. Um, one of the things that I thought was fascinating about your book is a. It reminded me that uh, Germans, uh, a little bit like Americans, are nations of joiners, and they had clubs for everything, in, including things like tennis, and they had even um, magazines for tennis. Many of them, if I recall correctly. Can you talk a little bit about the source base for, for? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 incredible when you look at the media landscape that emerged in in Weimar Germany. I mean, I, I even when when I when I teach classes on um, sort of 1920s uh, German history, there are a number of, of very famous photographs of these absolutely jam-packed, crowded news kiosks where it's like, you know, there are like just hundreds of magazines of all stripes and varieties uh, displayed. And they always show like a couple of those slides just to give Mm -hmm. students a sense of just the incredibly rich uh, media landscape. There were um, probably 40 uh, general uh, sort of sports magazines that were printed uh, during the Weimar Republic. There were probably 80 to 90 sports-specific journals and magazines uh, that appeared at the time. Uh, every major daily newspaper had um, uh, several sports pages. Some had in very, very thick sports sections. There were a number of newspapers, particularly the daily newspaper um, uh, Beitzet Mittag, that was famous for kind of pioneering sports sports journalism mm-hmm. and like, you know, very, very famous for their sports uh, reportage. So it was a really, really rich landscape. And the great thing about about doing German history as well is German journalists and German commentators, I mean, they're just very astute at self-analysis and at looking at what's going on in society, kind of examining kind of the larger ramifications of these changes in, you know, in, in what is essentially a leisure, um, uh, a leisure activity, sports. But they, they, they were really consistent about looking at what this said about kind of a larger commercialization of German culture, about what this said about German modernization, about what this said about changing gender roles for men and women, about what this said about changing bodies, what it mean, meant to be a modern person in, you know, sort of this fast-paced modern society. So um, one of the things I absolutely love about it is just the, the incredibly rich base of, of news commentary um, that, that sort of analyzes sports through this sociological mm-hmm. lens. And in addition to that, the other, the other sources that I used for, for my book were um, a number of popular movies uh, that thematized sports. I looked at cabaret songs. I looked at photographs, these commercial collectible photographs, especially of boxers where they're basically marketing their bodies. I looked at a number of pulp novels. There were, there were a whole series of kind of popular novels, dime, dime store novels that, that took sports as, as their, their, their main showcase. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a really, really rich landscape. It was so much fun kind of sifting through all of this material and and kind of looking at all this evidence, you know, transcripts of, of, of cabaret productions and and uh, memoirs of uh, leading athletes and, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, great commentators. There's this fantastic conservative commentator who went by the uh, pseudonym Rumpelstiltskin yeah. and he... He wrote for um, the daily newspaper Technica Rundschau, which was owned by Alfred Hugenberg, a very, very conservative publisher. Um, and, and he was in um, um, Rumpelstiltskin himself was a very, very conservative commentator. But he loved finding these sort of overlooked 
uh, kind of really interesting events going on in Berlin. And he's particularly drawn to female boxers and strong women. And so whenever there was something going on in Berlin, you know, I'd look at I'd look at his column, and he'd be there covering it. And he was just fascinated by these women. Um, and, and he writes about them a lot, often disparagingly, sometimes humorously. But but you could tell he was just riveted by by the phenomenon of the strong, powerful, aggressive woman. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you, um, so you, it's just an absolute joy researching this stuff. Yeah, I was going to say you you, meant, you mentioned female boxing, and so we can't um, we can't let that go. Actually, it's on the cover, we have to talk about. Yeah, it. well, female boxing is actually kind of big now in 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 Iowa for some reason. They have they have boxing matches in, in Iowa City quite a bit where I am, and I. I I've never been to see one, but I imagine they're 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 pretty fun. Now, uh, as you say, uh, boxing was a new thing to Germany, uh, and um, I suspect that women didn't do it for a while, but then they did. Maybe you could talk about how boxing came to Germany, and uh, a lot of your story revolves around one individual, that is Max Schmeling, um, and maybe you could talk a little bit about him too. Absolutely, yeah, um, yeah. The story of boxing is 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 really really interesting. Um, as I mentioned, it, it was sort of this. This underground, uh, quasi-illegal, depending on where you are, were in Germany, uh, sport, um, prone to police raids. It was associated with uh, low life. It was certainly associated with with gambling. Uh, it was associated with carnival sideshows. Um, Max Schmeling, who who ends up becoming sort of the, this legendary German boxer, the probably the greatest uh, German boxer of all time, and and, and the the world heavyweight champion um, in the early 1930s. He recalls a child growing up and uh, seeing boxing as this sort of carnival, crude, clownish pastime. Like he only associated it with these these kind of amusement park sideshows where it was clearly a scripted performance, and, and he was in some ways kind of turned off by it. Um, boxing. Um, Kind of emerges out of the shadows, 1918, 19, 19, 19, 20 in in Germany, and really via the British. Again, it's it's one of these um, these very clearly imported sports. Um, the British had already introduced it as this kind of underground sport in, in the, the late 19th century, so it existed on a low level there. But the really big German boxers in the, ni- in the first part of the 1920s, um, interestingly enough, are these boxers who had actually been prisoners of war hmm. um, on the Isle of Man um, in this, this POW camp known as Nakalo. And in fact, in Germany, they referred to them as Nakalo boxers, and this was the Nakalo generation of boxers. And these early heavyweight champions Champions is Guy uh, Hans uh, Breitenstrater. He was one of the, the famous early uh, champions in, in German boxing. He came from this POW camp, um, and so it's interesting. It's it's, it's sort of introduced uh, via um, via these POWs basically who learn how to box. The British wanted to you know, entertain the prisoners or keep them occupied basically while they were you know in basically in this holding cell until the war ends. Um, and so they they they, uh, they taught them boxing. Boxing then becomes sort of the the spectator sport, the social pastime in Germany, along with soccer and um, the six-day races. And these were these great urban sports in Berlin, in particular. They would have these organize these big boxing evenings where um, you'd have these you know, just a whole series of fights that led up to the great uh, heavyweight fight. And people would swarm from all over Berlin and from the outlying areas uh, to these to these fights. And it became a real social scene. People went there to, to see and be seen, kind 
kind of the social elite, in particular, the literary elite. I mean, there are a whole number of, of cultural luminaries uh, who, who just, you know, loved boxing. Bessel Brecht, probably most most famously uh, among them, but, but the theater director, Erwin Piscato, and Leopold Stokowski, the conductor, and just, you know, all of these people, George Gross, um, these people would just come, and, and you really, it was kind of like a who's who in Weimar, Germany, at these at these big boxing events. Women's boxing also emerges at the same time. I think it's precisely because this space opened up where boxing was new to Germany. And it was sort of like in Germany itself was kind of in this anything-go stage in 1919, 1920. And so it hadn't been like rigidly defined as an exclusively male sport quite yet. And women engaged in a number of, as far as I can tell, competitive or, or at least um, semi-competitive boxing matches in the early 1920s. Um, by 1922, 23, the boxing federations in Germany are getting concerned enough about this that they begin to crack down on women's boxing. And their concern really came from the fact that boxing in general was not taken as a serious sport, that it was seen as this commercial pastime, it was seen as, as just raw sensationalism. And the boxing um, federations were worried that, oh my God, these women boxing is just going to make it worse. It's just going to make it seem even more carnivalesque. If we want to be taken seriously as a sport, we need to define this as a male sport, um, and we need to really get serious about kind of cracking down on these more kind of less aspects. So this is what, what, what causes them to actually crack down on, on women's boxing um, and, and issue a, a certain number of bans. Interesting thing is, is boxing then kind of for women then morphs into kind of an exercise program. I mean, a little bit like boxercise today. Mm -hmm. um, there are a number of uh, famous female celebrities who love to be photographed in front of the, the sand sack or the, the punching ball. And um, it becomes kind of very glamorous to engage in these boxing workouts. Vicki Baum, who's um, a great screenwriter, ends up writing Grand Hotel, emigrates to the United States. Um, she boxed in the same gym that was turning out some of these German, um, these male German uh, boxing champions and, and writes very openly about like, you know, look, I'm, I'm out there jumping ropes just like them. I'm, I'm in the ring, you know, sparring just like they are. And, and she even suggests at one point that, you know, if push came to shove, you know, <laughs> I, I could defend myself. Uh -huh. um, so it, it's, it's really interesting the way in which um, despite the efforts on the part of the official boxing establishment to crack down and restrict and, 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 and in their mind, hopefully remove women's boxing, that, that women's boxing continues to survive and in, in some ways even thrive, albeit more as a, a kind of an, an exercise and, and self-development program, kind of a, a self, um, um, self-actualizing program rather than, than as a competitive sport. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When intellectuals uh, trumpeted the virtues of boxing. What exactly did they say? I mean, these are people that some of whom, uh, in living memory, they could remember when boxing was disreputable, and all of a sudden they're singing its praises. What? How did they? What did they say about it? Well, the interesting thing about about boxing, and I think the reason it becomes so popular in in the 1920s, is that in some ways boxing spoke to 
this this sort of larger impression that people had of modern society that the boxing in some ways was a reflection of modernity that modern society itself is especially in in germany where there's a fair amount of street fighting between uh, various political groups where there are a number of political assassinations early in the weimar republic there was kind of this air of violence um one of the things about boxing that that a lot of commentators at the at the time found so appealing was precisely that boxing was violent and therefore reflected society but it was violent violence that was in a very controlled space it was violence that was not threatening because it was demarcated by the ring and there were very clearly two guys who were going at it and the rest of the audience or the spectators could could just watch um so a number of commentators talk about the appeal of boxing in germany in the 1920s as being precisely because it was a reflection of the violence in larger society but in a much more contained and and safe environment mm-hmm. um that's one of the reasons for its popularity another reason for its popularity that that um that I read about in the book is that it kind of championed this this individual the individual hero the individual fighter the individual um sort of you know battler in the same way that um that World War 1 aces became very popular um coming out of the war precisely because the war itself had been this kind of mass slaughter where it was you know there wasn't really room for heroism it's just like all these people being mowed down mowed down seemingly um but the the pilots were these individual figures oh you could latch onto them as an individual figure in the same way the boxer was this individual fighter he was a warrior you could kind of latch onto and say ah there's my hero there's my individual in this sort of larger kind of faceless society mm-hmm. so that was another appeal i i think of boxing and the third appeal of boxing is boxing was very good at marketing itself boxing was the quintessential commercialized sensationalized sport they knew how to package an entertaining neat evening they knew how to package personas and reputations around certain boxers the boxers themselves were very astute at developing certain personalities and kind of a certain aura that they projected and the boxers themselves were very good at marketing their bodies you 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 alluded at the very beginning when you interviewed me um to you know how we might look at at, at the bodies in the 1920s were held upheld as the ideal and and you know kind of scoff at them a little bit because our standards have have risen even higher but for the 1920s these were hot bodies and these guys knew it and they 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 knew how to market themselves yeah. and it, it's amazing they you know they're selling pictures of themselves they're they're posing nude and semi nude like these pictures are being um photographed in magazines there was a whole series of novels about women who basically chase around these boxers and try to seduce them they're just so into the boxers mm-hmm. um so these boxers really they, they thought them in, in a way they were they were early sex symbols and they knew how to they knew how to capitalize on that mm-hmm. and there was something very appealing about that too yeah. you know for obvious reasons that was sex sells to <laughs> uh, for the public and by the way the women were doing the exact same thing mm-hmm. i mean the interesting thing that I, i i the interesting point that i think i make about Benjamin's boxing is it's like you know they're both doing the exact same thing they're both sensationalized they're both marketing themselves they're both incredibly uh, commercialized so like you know the differences between men's and, and women's boxing is like paper thin when it comes to the you know the larger um sort of uh, sociological meaning of the two sports it's 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 really amazing so the most famous boxer of the era somebody we've already mentioned and that was uh, Schmeling can you tell us a little bit about him and how he was marketed i mean he did uh he 
he became the most famous person in Germany. Am I wrong about that? I mean, was he? Oh yeah, he yeah. was. I mean, he he was one of the top celebrities. They did this um, one of the, one of the the polls that I cite in the book. They did this poll of I think it was thirteen or fourteen year olds uh, living in Germany, asking him. First of all, who they recognized and, and who they admired, and um, and Mott Smelling was was the top vote getter ahead of Karl May, who was like you know every 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 German male teenager, most German female teenagers know Karl May for his his, his uh, Wild West novels, mm-hmm. but like, even even above uh, Karl May, uh, all these all these kids idolized uh, Mott Smelling. Um, He's this really interesting guy. He comes out of uh, the Rhineland. Um, he is really this this self-made boxer. He kind of fights his way up from the working class, becomes incredibly wealthy. I mean, he is. In fact, he becomes almost as famous for his wealth as he is for his boxing prowess. There are a number of of boxing journals that that feature him in a business suit, kind of balanced on a rolling dollar coin, and um, the the boxing reporters love to report on how much he was earning for each fight, especially when he did his, his tours of America. It was like, you know, they, they, would, they would comment on the fight later on, but first let's get to the important stuff, which is like how much he's raking in, <laughs> uh, you know, in these in these fights. So, you know, I mean, all of the stuff that we talk about in boxing today and, you know, these like, you know, these multi-million dollar fights, I mean, that, the precursors to that, you can already see it happening in, in you know, in the, in the 1920s. Um, and... Uh, he emerges as uh, as the top uh, German boxer by you know 1929, 1930, uh, 31, and then uh, he wins the um, he wins the the world uh, heavyweight title, and he is the first German uh, to win the world heavyweight title. This was seen as you know Germany's moment. We you know we've arrived after the First World War. Interestingly enough, he wins. Uh, the world heavyweight title on the same day that a German woman uh, won the women's singles tennis title at Wimbledon, and oh my God, the sports pages thought like, oh, this is this is it, you know, we've we've, we've finally proven that that, that that you know we're back on top, um, or you know that, that that you know we're this we're this great nation again. Um, so he was absolutely this this figure of of adulation um, and very very astute. Uh, a businessman, um, you know, he definitely knew how to how to manage his money and how to invest it wisely. Um, he marries a famous film actress, Ani Andra, and they were sort of like the it couple uh, for for a long time in Germany. Um, after the war, interestingly enough, he uh, he becomes a, a Coca Cola. Uh, injury, which is so appropriate because yeah, it it, it's so perfect because um, boxing was was especially by the mid 1920s was seen as kind of this this vehicle for Americanization. There's this debate that emerges in Germany: what's the best style of boxing? Is it the British style of boxing where you win on points, or is it the American style of boxing where you win with a knockout? And, and Max Schmeling was definitely a proponent of the latter. He was he was about the knockout, and everybody associated him with America. He was the conduit to America. He did all these famous tours of America. He was earning a lot of his money in America. And so it's just perfect that after the war, he becomes a yeah. Coca-Cola bottler, introducing Coca-Cola into, uh, into northern Germany. And he, you know, he lived to be, he, almost, he lived almost to be 100. He just died uh, um, four or five years ago. Wow. Um, just incredibly um, long-lived man. Mm-hmm. So a very interesting figure. Mm-hmm. What did he, uh, this is a bit sort of a tangent, what did he do during um, the, uh, uh, the, the the National Socialist time? 
Um, he, he, at first, he's, he, he was very, very popular. They, they organized a rematch between uh, Smaling and Joe Lewis. Um, and uh, this, this was, Smaling this was, was not, not ready for this fight. And, and Joe Lewis was just a, a far superior boxer uh, by that point. And, and Joe Lewis just basically knocks him out of the ring. And, um, and this was really promoted on the lead up to this. This was going to be, you know, because Joe Lewis, the, the brown bomber, I mean, this, mm-hmm. you know, this is going to be this, this, this black American versus this, this sort of, you know, Aryan German. Um, and, um, and Joe Lewis just, just pummels him. And so he returns to Germany in, you know, in a little bit of, of disgrace. I mean, still well liked by, by, by many, many fans, but, um, a little bit on the outs. Um, uh, with the Nazis, he ends up being, I, I think, a paratrooper. He um, he injures himself when he's when he's uh, paratrooping over over Crete, and then um, and mm-hmm. spends most of the rest of the war. He recovers and then spends most of the rest of the war um, doing very stuff on on the home front. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been it's interesting. There's been a lot of attention to him recently in in, in biographies. There's been uh, these questions about what he did during the Nazi period, and um, it turns out that you know he he probably was involved in in helping um, uh, a couple of of um, of Jews um, escape or at least. Uh, at least get protection, mm-hmm. um, but there's been there's been a, you know a, a fair amount of attention over just how close he was to um, to the Nazi leadership and, mm-hmm. and, and what exactly uh, he was involved in mm-hmm. um, in Nazi Germany. But from 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 what historians have have um, have revealed so far, you know he he quitted himself, you know relatively speaking, mm-hmm. um, quite honorably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So let's go on to the third sport you deal with, or set of sports, and that is track and field. Um, Germans love to uh, go uh, wandern. I remember I, when I was in Germany, they always wanted to go to the Wald and uh, wander. And uh, so, so lots of lots of touring. Yeah, that was we did a lot of that. Uh, but uh, running, when did that come to? Um, when did that come to Germany? Well, it was. It, this was part of this wave of, of kind of British competitive sports that entered Germany at the at the end of the nineteenth century. So around the around the eighteen seventies, um, what we think of as competitive track and field enters Germany, um, becomes uh, quite popular uh, among a certain set of basically middle class people. Um, if if boxing was kind of this rough and tumble working class sport, and tennis was kind of this like elite upper upper crust aristocratic sport, uh, track and field is really the quintessential kind of working class sport. This was the sport for the white collar worker, um, and it becomes very popular, uh, especially in, in cities, um, very closely associated again with with Britain. In fact, so much so that um, they were even though Germany had had, had been metric for quite a while, um, they were still measuring the distances in the that's um, and they were they were doing their their you know their high jumping in, in, in feet and inches, um, and they were doing some of the announcements in English. And you know, a lot of times it was English officials who were officiating at these German track hmm. and field events. Um, so again, it kind of had this like kind of a taint of a a foreign sport uh, for uh, for a while. In the 1920s, it really becomes kind of the vehicle for. Kind of national regeneration to the extent that um, a competitive sport was really associated with 
this idea of keeping the, the population fit just in case we have to go to war again or, you know, in light of the fact that we don't have, you know, universal military service, let's keep the people fit. It, to the extent that that discourse existed and it absolutely did, um, it, it was kind of directed toward track and field because this was seen as the sport that would keep the body mm -hmm. most fit, most you know, ready to be mobilized in the in the event uh, in the event of a war. It's also interesting because the track and field is a very very strenuous sport, um, and women were getting involved in track and field uh, from early on, certainly from the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century. By the the 19 uh, 19, 1920s, um, they're getting this, forming their own track and field associations, and they're uh, organizing uh, competitions and becoming very, 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 very um, active in, in track and field. This raises a whole new discourse in Weimar Germany. This this anxiety over what effect track and field, especially strenuous running and strenuous like sort of jumping and, and throwing, what effect that has on these um, women's abilities to be future mothers. There's a huge concern about population in Germany, as there was throughout Europe after the First World War, and getting the birth rates up. This is a particular anxiety in France as well. Um, it was acute in Germany too, and there was this concern that uh, women engaged in these strenuous sports that they they wouldn't produce healthy children, or they wouldn't be able to produce children at all, or you know, or they they just become so competitive and so focused on their sport that they wouldn't even want to marry and become mothers. I mean, you know, God forbid. So, um, so there was this all this hand wringing about uh, the the larger kind of demographic ramifications of women's uh, participation in track and field. The interesting. Thing Thing is, over the course of the 1920s, especially by the end of the 1920s, early 1930s, um, the discourse has really begun to shift. And in fact, there's a whole set of commentators and medical experts who begin to chime in and say, you know what? Not only is track and field not harmful to women and won't affect their ability to bear children, but in fact, it's actually good uh, for women, and it'll allow these women to um, produce healthier children. And you know, we as a country, don't we want them to be athletic and to be these mothers who will raise their children in kind of this athletic tradition? This was the discourse that was kind of emerging mm -hmm. in the late 20s and early 30s. And so the interesting thing is this, you see this, this kind of amazing transformation taking place by the early 1930s. Uh, one could make a good case for Germany being uh, probably the most kind of um, women's sport friendly country or, or the, the, the country that was probably most supportive of women's track and field. And that's a tradition, by the way, that I, I think you see reemerging um, with gusto in, in East Germany um, uh, after the war. I, I, you know, there are a number of reasons why East Germany turns to women's sports, um, not the least of which because they can they feel like they can rake in all these medals. But I think it's also a continuation of this Weimar tradition of, of celebrating women's sports. And in even in the Nazi period, you know, for all the discourse of, you know, let's get women, you know, back into the homes, um, they they acknowledged and, and kind of celebrated, you know, you know, women's sports and the, the role of, of healthy women and, and, and healthy motherhood. So it's, mm -hmm. there is this interesting continuity, especially in that regard, that extends, you know, through the 30s and 40s and into the you know, 50s, 60s and 70s in East Germany. Mm -hmm. I, I want to ask you a couple of, of um, broader questions just to pull up a little bit. One of the things I do know about the era and sports is that in the Soviet Union at this time, the Soviet state went on a big kick to introduce uh, athletics into schools, fiscultura, they called it. And um, this was, a, I guess, what we might call a kind of 
from above initiative. But it strikes me, having read your book, that all of this comes, almost all of it comes from below in Germany. Is that right? I, for the most part, um, for the most part, it does. I mean, there's certainly an official encouragement of, of sports and athleticism, um, you know, and there are there, there are some officials, that, especially the mayor of Berlin um, at the time in the 1920s was was a huge proponent of sports. But at the same time, there were also people um, higher up in the national government who were. Um, either oblivious to sports or, you know, in, in, in some cases, somewhat hostile to sports. I mean, there's this famous quotation from uh, Gustav uh, Stavezeman, who is, you know, probably the most famous political figure of, of, mm -hmm. of the Weimar era and, and probably most famous as, as their, their uh, foreign minister. Um, but, but he had a couple of critical comments about what he saw as the biceps culture <laughs> in Germany. And, yeah, exactly. And, um, and you know, as you, as you, as you noted earlier, like some of the biceps of these people were sporting were not as impressive as they are nowadays. But um, but there was you know there there was a certain um, um, in some circles uh, a certain skepticism as to as to the value of of such a focus on sports and among a, a certain number of intellectuals. Well, I mean, the intellectual community was really split. There are some intellectuals, especially with regard to boxing, just absolutely loved it, embraced it. But there are also some intellectuals who are really uh, skeptical of sports, and they were really concerned because, you know, um, you know, Germany was always, you know, the, 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 the society and the culture of, of, of thinkers and poets, and they had this great um, intellectual tradition, and they were worried that this intellectual tradition was being displaced by this tradition that was a little too focused uh, on the body. And, and you see some of that being, that discourse being repeated by um, certain, certain national officials. Uh, but on the local level, just to emphasize again, there are a number of cities that had very, very activist uh, mayors who, who were promoting promoting this. So it's it's just kind of interesting. Uh, it's just interesting dichotomy. Yeah. So so to what extent did uh, the people actually participating in the sports think of their participation as part of a movement for national renewal? It's a good question. Um, probably not that much. Um, there were there were certainly some uh, leading athletes who who definitely presented themselves as sort of these harbingers of, of, of what this national body should look like. But, but whether that was just self-marketing or whether that was a reflection of their true belief, I'm not sure. Um, the best example of that I can think of is the middle-distance runner uh, Otto uh, Pelzer, um, who achieves fame by beating Pavel Nurmi once. Um, Pavel Nurmi, the great, the great Finnish runner. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that cements Otto Pelzer's sort of legendary status. But he, he very much saw himself as this sort of patriot, this this uh, avatar, like sort of, you know, the national body, the fit body, really promoting uh, fitness. He saw that as his mission. Most people, um, when they participated, they did it just for the sheer love of it. They did it because um, they liked the results that they got from it. They liked the bodies that they got. They, they did it as a, as a form of socialization. Um, a lot of people did it as a way to network with other people. I mean, this was a great way to meet people, and especially in a, a a very capitalist age, a very go-go age in the 1920s. This is a way to to meet other people who were equally kind of driven and, and, and committed. Um, a number of women did it, um, and they write about this. I mean, Vicki Baum is, is one of them who write about um, about their participation in sports as explicitly emancipatory. They mm -hmm. really see this as, you know, we're, we're making a blow for, for, you know, for independence or for a little bit of equality or 
um, you know, to be taken seriously in the public sphere. So there, there are all sorts of motivations, and probably for most people participating, the actual sense that like I'm committing, I'm you know I'm contributing to the national rejuvenation was probably really low on the list. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I for see. some of them, it was there. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. So uh, let's ask about continuity or lack thereof. My impression is that when the National Socialists came to power, as you said, they said that um, women had a particular role in a German National Socialist state, and that was to bear children and support men. Yes, um, but it's interesting because um, uh, the, 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 the effects and the importance of sports had been so thoroughly redefined by the late 20s and early 30s that by the time um, the National Socialists come to power, um, they really don't see that great a contradiction between women's participation in sports and, and women's roles as healthy mothers. And in fact, they, they see them as, as, as quite uh, congruent. Um, and so they, you know, they kind of pick up where, where Weimar left off and they said, you know what, like, this is actually good for women. You know, this will make women healthier, more exuberant, uh, fresher. Um, there was this sense of a kind of, uh, fresh-faced, wholesome athleticism that the Nazis really liked to celebrate as opposed to, um, you know, sort of this, this heavily, um, sort of makeup uh, woman who was overly dressed up and kind of an, an, an urban esthete. Um, that was the counter model of, of what they wanted mm-hmm. the woman to be. They wanted this woman to be like sort of vigorous and and, um, and strong and, and kind of robust and wholesome and, and healthy. And so they really do um, kind of celebrate um, women's athleticism. Within limits, women's boxing is definitely, is definitely on the outs. But uh, women's track and field, absolutely fantastic. In fact, the women do very very well for the Germans in the 36 Olympics. Um, Lenny Riefenstahl herself is like famously athletic and, and really helps to promote this ideal of uh, athleticism for, for men and women. Um, and so they really, they, they, they really didn't see any contradiction between uh, female athleticism and kind of a, 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 a rejuvenated um, German motherhood or mm-hmm. emphasis on, 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 on childbirth. In fact, they, they saw the two as going hand in glove. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other continuity that I think is important to keep in mind is, is that, uh, that continuity that emerges um, after the war itself, and especially in East Germany, where I think um, you know, there are a number of reasons why East Germans pick up on women's sports, but one of them is very much that there was this tradition of German women's sports that had already kind of solidified itself by the late 20s and early 30s um, that carries through the Nazi period and that the East Germans um, really pick up. And, you know, when you look at the, the medals they're winning by um, by the 1970s and 1980s, it is it disproportionately in the women's sports. And one of the reasons was because, I mean, there are all sorts of reasons. I mean, not the least of which, and I, don't not, I do not want to downplay the doping. It was absolutely right. doping. But... Another reason for it is that they were one of the few countries that really took women's sports seriously and that said, here's an opportunity for us to win medals. Let's really emphasize this. And they were, they were kind of pioneers in this, like, let's really seriously train our female athletes. And other, other countries then caught up as they were watching, you know, the East Germans basically eat their lunch. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very interesting because I know that it's um, sometimes the case when I bring or am associated with people that come from overseas, particularly from Eastern Europe, and I bring them to the United States or been with them in the United States touring around, and I explain to them that we have this athletic culture and that young people of their own volition go and spend hundreds and thousands of hours practicing these sports. They, they, don't, they kind of don't believe it. They kind of think, well, somebody must be forcing them to do that. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's not. I mean, they're actually, they really want to do it. I mean, I know when I was growing up, I just played sports like crazy. And the only place I've ever seen that was really like that, where people as kind of a pastime would go and play sports is Germany. Yeah, Germany and, and, and you know, and, and I think I think there is this, like, Anglo tradition as well, like Britain and South Africa and Australia and, and, uh, and New Zealand. But, but, yeah, Germany, it's, it's a very... It's a very sport. Uh, it's a very sport-focused country, and they they still have a just incredibly robust um, kind of sports media culture and you know sports pages. And you know, I mean, they, they produce even more famous sports champions now than they, mm-hmm. they were doing in the 1920s. I mean, they're absolutely at the foreground of of international sports. I remember right after uh, German unification in 1990, I think it was like a Time magazine uh, cover story, maybe a Sports Illustrated. That might, might make more sense, but like there was this big concern that like the, the Germany was just gonna like just gonna wipe everybody else <laughs> off the map like in terms of sports like the next Olympics it was just gonna be like Germany winning like five times more medals than the next person on the podium that it was just gonna be a, you know it's just gonna be all Germany but uh, mm-hmm. you know, that didn't quite um, that didn't quite uh, 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 come to be but um, but they're, you know they're absolutely one of the leading sports nations still. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this, because I think a lot of people will be curious. We haven't talked about soccer at all, and I know that a lot of people associate Germany with soccer. They have a great tradition of it. Um, why, why is it not really focused on in the book? Oh, it's a good question. Um, I, when, when I started writing the book and researching, well, re- researching the book, oh my gosh, I was not writing the book until much later, but when I started researching the book, I, I didn't really have a firm idea of which, in fact, I didn't even necessarily know that I wanted to narrow it down to particular sports. I thought, like, oh, you know, I'll get a get a sense of the discourse and kind of uh, kind of follow these leads and, and see where they take me in the archives. And so when, when I first arrived in Germany in 1997 to research this, um, uh, you know, really seriously, I, I followed a number of leads, and soccer was absolutely one of them. And I'm, you know, I'm taking all these notes and kind of kind of trying to figure out where this is going. And then, you know, I was emailing back and forth with my advisor and talking to some people in Germany, and and finally I realized, okay, this is getting this is a huge, huge topic, and this could be like you know, this mm-hmm. could be like 70 books. Um, <laughs> I need to narrow it down, and you know, it may be because this is really a growing field in history. But I thought, okay, I've got to narrow this down. Um, so I started thinking, like, okay, what sports might it make sense to uh, to include and, and leave out? And then I thought, like, okay, if if I limit myself to kind of individual competitive sports that were imported from Britain um, in which men and women uh, participated. This gives me kind of a nice base where I can compare um, you know these these three sports, but but you know I want something different about them as well, and that's where like the class component comes in. I yep. thought like okay, if I have like kind of one upper class sport, one middle class sport, um, one kind of working class sport, um, this would be nice. But in terms of the elimination of soccer, it really happened when I thought like okay, I wanna I really want to focus on um, individual sports, especially because one of my larger arguments is that these athletes become models for how to be modern mm-hmm. in a modern society. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to look at sports that, that kind of emphasize um, kind of timekeeping, uh, speed, efficiency, mm-hmm. you know, getting to the shot in time, you know, crossing the, the, the tape, you know, in, in a record time, like, you know, being able to, to uh, go the distance and round after round in a boxing match. I, wa- I wanted to look at... At, at sports that kind of distilled uh, what I, I saw as a modern sensibility mm-hmm. um, 
in 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 an individual sport because I think individualism is also very much a part of of being modern and and, and the modern body. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those reasons, I ended up kind of reluctantly leaving soccer out of it. The other reason is is a lot of people have written about soccer. soccer. Oh, I see. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was going to say I didn't. I did not know that. I just uh, it's something that I associate from my my own childhood. I we. We played soccer in addition to football, or yeah, soccer yeah. and football. That's confusion, but uh, I just wondered kind of what, what it, where it was. But th- that's a judicious choice, I think. I mean, I mean I, whenever you approach a topic like this, you think you're going to write the history of sports in X, but it turns out that, or history of anything in X, but it turns out, as you say, there could be seventy books about that. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I like yeah. that phrase very much. I may steal it and use it without attribution to you. You should, you should. <laughs> you know, and, and, and you already have competitions. I just heard from someone a couple of days ago who's like writing a big book. On, on women's soccer, kind of over the course of the of the, the 20th century, it's you know I think in the aftermath of, of uh, particularly the World Cup, where I think I think this was the World Cup where like Americans were like, oh my gosh, soccer's just really close borders, like you know we're starting to watch it more. Um, I, you know I think there's going to be this this real uptick in, in kind of sports history scholarship and especially um, uh, histories of soccer. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope so. And if your book is uh, any measure of the quality of thing that we're going to see, then I, I think we have looked forward to some 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 really good stuff and uh, oh, thank you very much uh, uh, we've been talking to uh, eric jensen today about his book body by weimar athletes gender and german modernity eric i, I want to say thank you very much uh, for being on the show but before i let you go i want to ask our traditional final question and that is um what are you working on now one of those 70 books, I take it. You know. <laughs> exactly. Number, number 68, yeah. 69, whatever we're at. Um, uh, it's actually it's, it's building off of um, uh, a really interesting figure that features prominently in Chapter 1 of, of Body by Weimar, and it's this woman, Paula von Resnicek, and uh, she is this absolutely fascinating uh, chameleon-like figure who is able to reinvent herself at a number of different stages um, in her life and in her career. She's a pioneering female journalist in the 1920s, as well as one of Germany's um, leading tennis players, as well as a real strong proponent for sexual emancipation, mm-hmm. the sexual liberation of women, that women should be able to have sexual partners as often as they wanted with without uh, strings attached. She's also a very um, uh, a very strong proponent of, of women being in the workforce. She ends up, because of her Jewish background, um, she ends up um, going sort of underground in, in the Nazi period, but, but not underground in the traditional way. Underground, she married Hans um, uh, Stuck, who was this legendary German auto racer. By virtue of her marriage to him, she's accorded uh, a certain amount of protection. Mm. And she goes underground in the sense that she, she um, no longer plays a, a public role herself, but she invests all of her energy and all of her considerable journalistic talents into kind of marketing um, her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, Germans at the time referred to it as the Stuck Enterprise. And it was really Paula von Resnitschek behind the scenes mm. kind of um, operating things and, and kind of shaping his public persona. And um, and after the war, they get divorced and, and, and she reinvents herself again. So I wanted to do this kind of biography, kind of deep, rich biography that kind of looks at, at the life and times of this woman um, through the, the, the prism of, of her own life and her own her own actions. I, I, I think it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, I think it'll be a lot of fun to work on. And, and she's absolutely fascinating figure. There, there really is not that much on her. Um, her, her Wikipedia page is one sentence long. <laughs> last time 
than I said. <laughs> he deserves more than that. Yeah, and I think he so too. Much yeah. more than that. No, no, that's, that's exactly right. Well, it does sound like a fascinating topic. I'd never heard of her before I read your book, and I look forward to reading more about her. But for now, let me say uh, thanks for being on the show, Eric, and uh, I'll talk to you later, okay? Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Eric Jensen about his new book, Body by Weimar, Athletes, Gender, and German Modernity. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.